All right, welcome. Good to have you here today. Uh, we're going to be uh, addressing the issue of depression in this workshop. <clears throat> and what I've done here today is somewhat condensed a two-hour seminar I gave to uh, our counseling training center uh, here at our church last month. And um, so we'll, we'll be touching on various points of it and then landing in the main portion, which is Psalm 119, which is a portion of scripture that I want to walk you through and show you how you can use an extended portion of scripture to uh, minister the word to someone who is uh, struggling with depression. Uh, Glenn, perhaps you could close those doors for us. That would be great. Thank you. And the reason I want to concentrate on that Psalm 119 passage at the end is because um, uh, it, it's easy for us as biblical counselors to become problem-focused as opposed to person-focused. And, um, and so we find out that someone has a problem with, the, uh, with depression, and so we might end up saying, okay, well, let's find all the verses in the Bible that we can think of that, that say something about depression, and let's just throw them at the people and let them try and process it and figure it out. And, and the longer I counsel, the more convinced I am that we need to have... Um, key passages of scripture, larger portions of scripture that we can use to walk a person through and to lead them to meditate on the word because uh, the meditation on the word is what actually changes us. I think of Psalm 1, I think of Joshua 1.8. There is power in meditating on the word of God, not simply looking up a couple verses, thinking about it for a minute, but to actually spend uh, a good amount of time thinking through passage of scripture. So <clears throat> the, the introductory thoughts that I have before we get to Psalm 119 are not in your notes. So if, if there's a, any blank pages in your notebook, you might want to find one of those uh, at this point because um, we'll spend probably the first 20 minutes or so just introducing you to <clears throat> the issue of depression before we then dive into Psalm 119. First of all, I think we have a choice to make uh, as to whether or not we consider depression to be a problem or an opportunity. Is it a problem in our society, or should we as believers, we who know the truth, should we look at it not as a problem, but an incredible opportunity for biblical ministry? Because 16.1 um, million adults as of 2015 in the U.S. alone had experienced at least one major depressive episode in the last year. That represents 6.7% of all American adults. Okay. Depression is the leading cause of disability in the United States among people ages 15 to 44. So uh, is, it a, is it a problem in our culture? Well, well certainly, but uh, we who know Christ, we who have the gospel, we shouldn't be looking at society and saying these are the problems. We should be saying these are amazing opportunities for the gospel. Because when we understand the New Testament and the culture in the New Testament, we understand that the culture in which we live in is not really that different from New Testament culture. 
read through the book of First Corinthians and you will find all of the issues that we are struggling with in our culture today also taking place in some cities in the New Testament time period. And the answer wasn't just to cry out against the cultural evils, but the answer always was to bring the gospel to bear upon those uh, situations and those sins and to always be the ones to announce that there is hope in Jesus Christ. So is it a problem or an opportunity? If I have to choose between those two, I'm going to definitely say it's a massive opportunity for biblical ministry in our culture. We who have Christ, we have hope. And that is the thing that the depressed person has lost. They have lost hope. Um, let me just give you three definitions of depression. You may have had this in some of your previous training, but uh, let me just bring them to your attention and I'll comment on them. One is from Robert Smith, who is a medical doctor. He's been involved in biblical counseling training for, I think, over 40 years now. He says, depression is a debilitating mood, feeling, or attitude of hopelessness, despair, or joylessness, which becomes a person's reason for not handling the most important issues of life. That's from the Christian Counselor's Medical Desk Reference. Uh, Robert Smith. It's a good size uh, hardback volume. You should consider getting yourself a copy of it um, because it it looks at some of the medical issues that we uh, will encounter in our counseling ministry, but it looks at them from the perspective of a person who's not only a biblical counselor, but who has also spent his entire life as a as a family physician. And so it's a unique uh, unique perspective. But notice in that definition uh, that I read to you, he says it's a mood, it's a feeling, and it's debilitating. It's crippling. It affects uh, a person's ability to respond and handle the pressures of life. Jay Adams <clears throat> defines depression this way. Almost anything that can be at the root of the counselee's depression a recent illness in which he gets behind in his work, hormonal changes, a reversal of fortunes, the consequences of simple negligence, guilt over a particular sin, self-pity arising from jealousy or a disadvantageous turn of events, a bad feeling resulting from resentment or worry, etc., and he goes on to say this, the important fact to remember is that depression does not result directly from any one of these factors, but rather comes from a cyclical process in which the initial problem is mishandled in such a way that it is enlarged. In other words, uh, depression tends to come from a response to a problem rather than being the problem itself. Now, there are situations in which uh, depression is linked to a physical issue going on in the body. And we'll touch on that later just from the standpoint that we need to have the humility, uh, humility enough as counselors to acknowledge that we are not medical doctors nor should we ever pretend to be. Um, but there is always a need for us to be ministering to the soul of the people that God puts in our lives to minister to. 
We also then need to, to remember <clears throat> that we are embodied spirits. What I mean by that is we are body and soul. When God made Adam and Eve in the garden, it says that he made Adam from the dust of the ground and then breathed into him the breath of life and Adam became a living soul. Adam was a body-soul being until the day he died. And then the separation of soul and body took place. And the same is true for us. We are body and soul always together. Let's not forget that. The body impacts the soul. The soul impacts the body. That interchange, that interplay is always going on. And so it's, it's really a mystery how this works, that our body and soul are always impacting each other. Um, just take, for example, the last time that you had a really bad case of the flu. Did it affect your spirits at all? Did you feel down? Did you feel, you know, just tired? Did, maybe did you even skip your Bible reading for a day or two? Because you, you were just wiped out. It affected your attitude. It affected your outlook on life. Why? Because something was messing with your body. But because the body and the soul are always having interplay, uh, one was affecting the other. They both were impacting each other. So biblical counseling affirms that the human body and spirit impact one another. Okay, We are embodied spirits. Let me give you just a few examples. The Jewish patriarchs recognized this. They recognized that there are powerful emotions that have impact upon the body. Let me give you a few references. Genesis 37-35. Jacob feared the possibility of premature death caused by deep sorrow and distress. That's Genesis 37-35. Let me also give you then Genesis 42-38 and Genesis 44-29. So all, all three from Genesis 37-35, 42-38, 44-29. Jacob, it says in those, in those verses that he feared premature death that would have been caused by extreme sorrow. Perhaps you've heard of cases in which a spouse has died and then not long afterward because of extreme sorrow the other spouse dies. There is, there is suffering that, that impacts um, the body. I'll give you another example. In Genesis 44, 30 to 31. Genesis 44, 30 to 31. This is what we read. Judah is um, pleading for the release of his youngest brother, Benjamin. He's, he's begging Joseph to let Benjamin return to his father. And he says, Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. 
lest your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. This is another example of how a deep sorrow could have led to premature death. Now, of course, when we say premature death, we're looking at it from an earthly perspective. According to Psalm 139, God already has our birth and our death on his calendar. But from an earthly standpoint, there are factors that are involved in, uh, in how we die, right? The very process of how we die is impacted by things that are going on in our lives and in our body. But then secondly, the Bible also contains examples of the reverse experience. In other words, where, where depression, or we might say other mood disorders, are rooted in physical suffering. So the first examples I gave you is how physical suffering can impact mood, and mood then results in physical consequences. But now we're talking about how depression and other mood disorders can arise out of physical suffering. Uh, for example, Psalm 102. Psalm 102. The psalmist is pleading with God. Verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. And let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me in the day when I call. Answer me quickly. For my days have been consumed in smoke, and my bones have been scorched like a hearth. My heart has been smitten like grass and has withered away. Indeed, I forgot to eat my bread. Because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I resemble a pelican of the wilderness. I've become like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I have become like a lonely bird on a housetop. You see the interplay back and forth there? His spirit is in distress. And then he goes on to say, why? So he begins by crying out to God, God, help me, hear me. I'm in distress. Okay, that, that Old Testament word distress is, is what we would call stress. I mean, intense stress, anxiety, and, and uh, oftentimes, you probably realize this in your counseling, that anxiety and depression uh, many times coexist. It, it's an odd thing. You would think that the person who's anxious, we just so anxious that depression wouldn't be a factor, and yet both of them seem to be going on at the same time. And an evidence of this is that the very same medications that they use for to help a person control their anxiety are also used, they're given to people who are struggling with depression. Identical medications. And, and what, that, what that indicates is we really can't figure out what's going on because of this mystery of body and soul interplay that's going on uh, in us all the time. And so uh, the psalmist, he says, I'm in distress. Why? Because all this stuff is going on. But notice in verse 12 how at the end of the day he really rests in the sovereignty of God. He says, but you, O Lord, abide forever in your name to all generations. That in the mystery of trying to understand what is going on in our lives and in our spirit at times, we have to come down to the fact that God is still in control. God's still in control. And what I love about these psalms is they're so real. 
anxiety, depression, they're not new. These are not new troubles. They go all the way back to Genesis 3 and 4. When sin entered the world and, and something, it's sin, obviously disrupted the relationship between God and man. In Genesis 4, for example, we see a relationship between anger and depression. Sometimes I've heard biblical counselors teach that, that Cain's problem in Genesis 4 was depression, and it isn't. His problem is anger, which then led to depression. He was angry at God because God accepted his brother's sacrifice and not his. And it says as a result of that being angry at God, his countenance fell. So um, these are just things that we need to really, really uh, acknowledge that as much as we strive to understand how all of this works, there is still a mystery involved. Job is another example. Uh, Job 3, verse 26. Now you know something of the, of the troubles of Job, right? In a matter of a day's time, he lost everything. Lost all of his wealth. He lost his ten children. And uh, deep, incredible suffering. He experienced excruciating bodily pain. But also emotional responses to that. He says in 326, I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, but only turmoil. That describes a man who is overtaken by anxiety, doesn't it? I mean, he is just... Would you be? You know, if everything earthly in your life was taken away in a matter of a day's time and you had ten children and they were all taken in death the same day yeah no doubt we would have no peace, no quietness, no rest, no turmoil. Now, that doesn't contradict what it says in Job, in other places in Job that, that he, he didn't sin that, that he, he bowed down and worshipped to God in his, in his initial response. He does sin later on in the book, the complaining attitude and some things going on there, but his initial response was one of worship and submission to God. Let me show you another example in 2 Corinthians um, verse 1. If, if you have come to think that uh, Christians don't don't uh, ever despair that you need to really meditate on this passage the Apostle Paul experienced burdens that were beyond beyond his strength 2 Corinthians 1 alright you may know the uh, first part of the chapter, and you should, it's a crucial chapter for anyone involved in ministry to one another, that God is the God of all comfort, verse 3. He comforts us in all of our afflictions. Why? So that we will be able to comfort other people. Just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant, verse 5. If 
if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort, Paul says. If we are afflicted, it's actually for your benefit because, because God is doing a work in our hearts and then actually ends up making, making us better ministers of comfort to you. Our hope, he says in verse 7, is firmly grounded. For we do not want you to be unaware, verse 8, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. Now that's more than lack of physical strength. This is, this is being completely wiped out. You may have felt this way at the end of a funeral or a day after a funeral of someone very close to you. And, um, and perhaps um, even, if it, even if it was a sudden death like when my mom passed away uh, eight years ago and, and she was gone in a matter of three hours. And, and, and if you've gone through anything like that, you may find that uh, afterward, after that experience, you may be completely without strength. Physically without strength, you might you may not even have an appetite. Not really, maybe you don't even care to eat, but you do because you know it's the right thing to do. Mentally, emotionally, you might be just completely wiped out. So he is, he's saying we were burdened excessively. We were beyond our strength. And then he says, so that we despaired even of life. We despaired even of life. We despaired. We had lost hope that we were even going to come through this alive. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So God, in his providential working in our lives can orchestrate events in such a way to bring us to the place where we have lost all physical, mental, and emotional strength, completely wiped out, have the sentence of death within ourselves. Why? Because God is trying to strip away from us any trust we have in ourselves. so that we will trust in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death. And he will deliver us. See the hope? Hope in the promise? He will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope. And yet he will deliver us. You also join in helping us through your prayers. So you see what Paul is doing there? He's admitting that the state he's in, completely wiped out, completely um, hopeless, sentence of death within ourselves, and yet God grants to him the faith to be able to cling to a simple promise that is that God will deliver us. He will. And, and it's on God that we have set our hope. Okay? So when we are counseling people who are struggling with depression, we need to understand, God is doing something very precious in their life and in their heart. 
and he wants us to be part of the process of redirecting them from a state of being hopeless to hoping in God. That's what I love about this is that Paul is saying our, our hope came from God and God only. It didn't come from that our circumstances might improve. You know, sometimes we, we hope things will get better, right? And that's what pulls us out of something. Or like a, an elderly person in our family a while back hung on for dear life until, until the first great-great-grandbaby was born because it was so important for her to have a five-generation picture and then the day after she died. Hope, hope, hope in this. And, the, and, and as wonderful as that is, and it really uh, moving, Paul says, we set our hope on God, on God only. And this reminds me of Psalm 42 and 43, where repeatedly the psalmist is talking to himself, who's in, he's in a deep, deep state of depression and struggle, and he says, hope in God, hope in God, hope in God. Now when we counsel people, what are we telling them to hope in? Are we saying, well, you know, God's going to bring good out of this and, and someday you'll see that. Is that a promise we really can give to someone? We can give the first part of that promise to, to them, that if they're a believer, God is somehow working this together for good, but that they will see it in their lifetime. Is that a promise we can make? No. Sometimes God graciously does allow us to see the good, but I think that that promise is not is not going to be fully realized until until we are with the Lord in His presence, and we'll have a much fuller picture of why He did the things He did in our lives and the good that He was bringing out of really difficult situations. So. My, my point here is, as counselors, let's make sure we are rooting a person's hope in only God. And the way you do that is through the Word of God, of course, because that's the only way we know the character and the confidence of God, that God is the one to be hoped in. He's the subject of hope, okay? So... I'm saying all of that to say that there is always this body and soul connection in our lives and the lives of the people that we're counseling. There is always an interplay. The body is impacting the spirit. The spirit is impacting the body. It's a mystery that we don't fully understand. Which means then, we need, we need to humbly acknowledge we are not medical doctors. But we are physicians of the soul. We're physicians of the soul. Uh, respect for medical counsel is wise. I hope that when you counsel with someone who's struggling with deep emotional um, issues that are to the point where they're debilitating, I really hope that you are encouraging them to go to their to their primary physician and get 
a complete physical. Find out when was the last time you had a complete physical. Blood work, full checkup to see just how your body is doing. Because we don't know what's going on. And it's not our job to fix anything that's medical. Okay? No. Is, is the whole area of disorders today abused? Yeah, of course it is. But that doesn't mean that there isn't some real connection in some people's lives uh, between their body uh, and their soul. Alright? For some people, help uh, getting control of their emotional state through a temporary use of a symptom-relieving medication may be helpful. Others will not find it helpful. Others will find that it makes them the matter worse. That was my personal experience. About five years ago, I had a collision of things that came into our lives that sent me to the ER twice in six months with every symptom of heart attack. And so going through all the tests and stress tests and everything, the doctor came to the realization that I didn't have heart attacks. What I had was uh, what the Mayo Clinic calls broken heart syndrome, which is it is a stress-induced heart attack. It doesn't cause physical damage to the heart muscle, but you get every symptom. And he was so concerned that that I would have more of those um, to the point where it would cause damage. He convinced me, uh, and I followed his wisdom, to be put on a symptom-relieving medication. And he had his doubts. I had mine, but I submitted to him because he had the knowledge of what was going on with my body. For me, it didn't help me. It made, it made matters uh, much, much worse. But then I have a biblical counseling friend in, in California who, in his book on depression, testifies of how God did use the short-term uh, use of a medication to bring him to the place where he could actually um, be stable enough to listen and, and apply the counsel that people were bringing into his life. So it's, it's just one of those issues that um, we need to not be uh, overly dogmatic on uh, when we're not really in a position to do that. But mental fog is something that accompanies severe depression, and that's why uh, I am always telling people, uh, get a lot of counsel. You know, the decision to either use or not use a medication uh, must be carefully made. It must be well-informed. It needs to be bathed in prayer. It needs to be clothed in counsel. Because for some, the medication will be helpful. For others, not so much. And even when I counsel people, typically, um, and maybe this has been your experience, when I counsel someone, they're all, they've, they've come to me, they're already on perhaps several medications. I don't make that the issue in counseling. I don't think that's my job to make that the issue. I don't think it's my job to tell them 
but they need to get off of those things. In fact, I think that it would be malpractice on my part to do that. Getting off of some of those medications can be very dangerous if it's not done under the supervision of a medical uh, doctor, under a physician. But what I have found is that I, as I, as I practice being a physician of the soul, administering the word of God to that person's soul and helping to renew their mind with the word of God, typically they will get to the point where God is producing a certain level of stability in their lives that they see that God is working and they're growing and their confidence in God is increasing, which results then in their confidence in, the, in their medication being the solution decreases. And on their own, they will typically say, I'm not sure I need this stuff anymore. And I'll say, well, when's the next time you're going to see your doctor? Oh, a month from now? Well, then, uh, next time you see him, you tell him how you're doing. Tell him that you're going to counseling. Tell him that you're feeling, you know, just tell him the ways that, that you, you feel you're improving and, and see what he says. Ask him if he'd be willing to walk you through that. Uh, but at the end of the day, it, it's their decision to make. It's not ours. I think Charlie Hodges is right on in his book, Good Mood, Bad Mood. If you don't have that book, you should get it. Um, Charlie's also a medical doctor uh, based in Indianapolis and in Faith Faith Biblical Counseling Ministries. He really comes down at the end of the day that for believers, it's a Romans 14 issue. It's a Romans 14 issue of the conscience. And so I think that, that we need to be careful. We give people wisdom. We give them truth. But let's, let's be careful we don't cross a line that we shouldn't cross. We're physicians of the soul. We're not medical doctors. Okay? Send them to their physician to have a full um, checkup and find out. Uh, what is going on. I've been praying since the day I got here to Cornerstone that the Lord would bring more medical personnel into our church and that some of them would go through our biblical counseling training because I think it would be so helpful to our team of counselors. We have 12 certified counselors in our church, which is such a blessing. I, I was teaching in South Dakota last week for ACBC, training for them, and there's one certified biblical counselor in the entire state of South Dakota. And when my, when my host told me that, I thought, Lord, wow, we have 12 in our church. And there's one in the entire state, South Dakota. So um, many, I know many of the, the counselors in Ohio have been trained through BCI. Um, and I don't know how many we have in Ohio, but I know we have a good amount. So, so it seems to me that, that we just need to strive for balance, to be biblically balanced. So I think we should avoid extremes. So let me just give you four extreme conclusions that I think that we should avoid. One, depression in and of itself is always sin. Sometimes it is. But not always. Sometimes it is a sinful response to something that God has providentially brought into uh, our life. But not always. And as a side note there, you might want to add, 
that sadness is not bad. That's my, my favorite chapter in Charles Hodge's book, Good Mood, Bad Mood, is, is, is called The Goodness of Sadness. And he shows how in scripture, God, um, God brings sadness at times, and how God uses sadness in people's lives. Number two, depression is always caused by sin. That's an extreme conclusion that we should not make. Some people have made that conclusion. Depression is always, so, so first, depression itself is sin. Second, depression is always caused by sin. Sometimes it is, but not always. Sometimes it is. Yeah, sometimes I've counseled people who are really, really depressed, and then through probing and asking a lot of questions, I come to understand that they've been perhaps addicted to pornography for years, or perhaps um, they, they've gone through multiple um, uh, relationships being destroyed by sin. Number three, depression is purely biological or chemical. I think that's an extreme conclusion. Why? Because the soul always needs the ministry of the word. So even if there is something biological going on, even if there is some some change in the, the body, for example, dementia, if you've done any reading on dementia or, or someone in your family, is now entering stages of dementia, you discover how it is impacting their moods. And, you know, people who, who never struggled with depression their entire life. And now all of a sudden, they're having these deep periods. So there, there sometimes is a biological connection. Okay. But to say that it's purely biological and chemical, in other words, the answer is just go get a pill. That's not the answer. Might it be part of the answer for some people? Yes, it might. But the soul is always in need of the ministry of the word. Always. <laughs> and then number four, it is always wrong for a Christian to take mood-related medications. That is an extreme we should avoid. I have taught at biblical counseling conferences, and when I've shared my little bit of my story more than what I shared with you today, I've had lines of people standing to talk to me after the seminar to tell me how they had beaten themselves up and lived in such deep false guilt for so long because they had had a teacher or a pastor or somebody who said to them that the reason they're on those meds is because they don't have enough faith is that they, their, their Jesus is just isn't big enough. They just need to learn to trust Jesus more. Do they? Yeah, I'm sure they do. Just like I need to learn to trust Jesus more. And you do too. But to make things that simplistic uh, and that extreme is, is unhelpful. So sometimes it is, but not always. Sometimes it would be wrong for a Christian to take those mood-related medications if they are not following the counsel of the Word of God applied to their situation 
they want to just perhaps continue to live in sin and find a way to be happy and live in sin at the same time. So it might it might be, but not always. Okay? Now I know that's a really long introduction <laughs> to Psalm 119, uh, the portion, but, but I, I just really feel it's important to have that that foundation, that background. So this is the conclusion I've come to. That some things are physical. So there are some aspects of our suffering that are connected to our body. But all things are spiritual. That is, regardless of whether the body is a contributor to anxiety and or depression, every emotional struggle includes a spiritual element. There's always something going on vertically between me and God and the people that you're counseling between them and God. There's always something going on. And so the embodied spirit is always in need of some form of counseling. The ministry of grace and truth. And that's why I say what I do. We're not, what I did before, we're not medical doctors, so we don't come into the picture and say, well, this is what you should do with your meds. No, we say, let me minister to your soul and your spirit through the word of God. And then as that subject comes up, you can give wisdom and and, uh, suggestions regarding that whole area. But don't play doctor when you're not. Okay? Make sense? All right. Now let's go to Psalm 119. Because I just want to give you that as an example of working through depression. This this is an amazing passage of scripture that grabbed me. Um, Boy, it was in the (laughs) early 90s. Um, Psalm 119. Um, 25. Just let's just read it, okay? Um, to start with, first verse, verse 25. My soul cleaves to the dust. Did you say that sounds like a guy who's depressed? <laughs> yeah, I think so. He's eating dust. I mean, his spirit is so down. But then look at the last verse, 32. I shall run the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge my heart. So in eight verses, he goes from being down in the dirt, in the dust, saying, my soul is cleaving to the dust, to I'm going to run with you, Lord, because you're the one who enlarges my heart. You're the one who gives me my joy. You're the one who restores my hope. So what happened between verses 25 and 32? That would be helpful for us to understand so that we can counsel others uh, more faithfully. Well, notice first, we need to identify the cause of depression. And when I say cause, I know that word is singular, but many times it's not singular. There might be many things going on in a person's life that contribute to uh, the depression. But notice how uh, he begins with prayer. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Now notice throughout that passage of scripture, the words that are used that indicate that this man who is depressed knows that God is the solution. Okay? That ultimately, God is the one. Because notice how in every single verse, he's basically saying, I'm praying. 
Revive me. 25. Verse 26. Teach me. Verse 27. Make me understand. 28. Strengthen me. 29. Remove the false way away from me. Uh, 30. I've placed your ordinances before me. I shall run. So there's all of this action that he is taking. He's not sitting around waiting for someone else to, to help him get out of his funk. Okay? I've known depressed people like that. They get depressed, then they isolate themselves. They don't come to church anymore. They stay home. They, they don't go to social gatherings anymore. Why? Because they're waiting for something to just zap them out of this and snap them out of this. Perhaps they're, they're waiting for someone to come to their aid to help them out. Now, we do need each other to come to our aid, but at the same time, this guy is taking responsibility for himself. And notice then, in every single verse, God is present. Your word. You have answered me. Your statutes, your precepts, your wonders, your word, your law, your ordinances, your testimonies. Oh, Lord, your commandments. You will enlarge my heart. So if you underline all of the prayers and you circle all of the times that God is mentioned, what, what does it tell you about that passage of Scripture? It's saying that prayer was a big part of this guy's, quote-unquote, healing or remedy for depression. He knows that, that in the midst of his confusion, his distress, his depression, all that's going on in his life, he knows that God, God will be his hope in the end. Now, might there be some other secondary things that God brings along the way? Other, other provisions he brings along the way? Yeah, for sure. But he's noticing he's going to God first. And then he, he evaluates his life. Verse 26, I've told of my ways and you've answered me. Teach me your statutes. So in, in the first part of verse 26, he's talking to God about his life. He is, he's kind of evaluating his life in the very presence of God. He's, he's wondering to himself, have I gotten off the path? Are my ways, are some of my ways not in accordance with your ways anymore, Lord? If so, teach me. So there's a humility, there's a teachable spirit there. He's coming to God in prayer. He's not just saying, God, fix my problem. He's saying, he's saying God, help me to see what you want me to see in my own life that may need adjustment. Okay? He's entertaining the possibility that sin may contribute to his emotional state. Maybe not, but he's teachable and open. And that's what I think we should be praying for when we're working with someone who's depressed, is that at least they're open to the point of saying, Lord, show me what you're trying to teach me. 
Show me what you're trying to change in me. Number three, plead for understanding. Make me understand the way of your precepts. So I will meditate on your wonders. He, he's wanting to understand the working of the Lord in his own life. He wants to understand the word of God, but he wants to understand how does the word of God intersect with his current circumstances, his current situation, with what's going on in his spirit, with what's going on in his life. You can see here the mystery that we talked about earlier. There's a mystery in these, these emotional struggles that we have. Let's, let's just be humble enough to face the fact and say, sometimes figuring this out is like trying to nail jello to the wall. You can't do it because there's a mystery involved. We are made, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. <laughs> Scripture says. But you know what? The verse before that talks about how God knit us in um, our mother's womb. And there's a Hebrew word that is used of inward parts in 139.13, Psalm. That that Hebrew word actually refers to our emotional makeup. <laughs> That's amazing. You formed my inward parts. So we are so wonderfully designed by God that he is to be praised. And, and, and that not only is our physical frame custom made by God, but our emotional makeup is custom made by God. That's why you and I are not the same emotionally. Every person in this room, guaranteed, is different emotionally just as every one of us in this room is different physically. And what, what that just says to me is, Paul, be careful. <laughs> be careful. You don't try to be dogmatic in places you can't be dogmatic. Leave mystery with God. Let's apply the word of God. Let's prayerfully help people. Let's minister to their spirit, their soul. But let's not try to change people in such a way that we try to make them a miniature version of us. Because, after all, everybody should be like us, right? <laughs> what a joke that is, huh? And number four, admit you have no strength, verse 28. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. Strengthen me. Now, he wants the word to strengthen him. So, do you think he's looking for physical strength here? No, he's looking for strength of spirit. He wants, he wants the joy and the energy just renewed within him. And um, tell you what, have, as a person who has struggled at various times in my life with, with times of, of depression, there is something so exhilarating when you sense that God is pulling you out. And you're starting to see the light again and the hope is coming back. And, um, and there is this strength of spirit that is returning 
and this renewed energy inside and hopefulness about the future and, you know, all these kinds of things. But, but first we have to admit that, that we um, have no strength in and of ourselves. And then confess sin and be cleansed. Verse 29. Remove the false way from me. Graciously grant me your law. Now what that tells me is his humility in verse 26 has produced some insight. Now let me ask you this. Is there anyone in this room who who after spending time evaluating every area of your life and comparing it to the word of God and prayerfully seeking God, would any of us come to the end of that and say that there's no that there's no falling short? No. So even if there wouldn't be like this big glaring, you know, way, way massive kind of sin, every one of us would be by the Holy Spirit undoubtedly convicted of failures in some area of our life where we are falling short of the glory of God, which is what sin is, right? That's part of what sin is. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So identify the cause or causes of depression. Then, secondly, decide to, to let God rehabilitate you. That's the last three verses. Notice how he, he takes responsibility for his situation. He makes a choice. I have chosen, verse 30, the faithful way. So, in, in whatever ways God has revealed to him that he has gotten off the path, he has chosen now to deal with those areas. He, he chooses to follow God's word. So where he fell short, he now says, God, help me to be obedient. And then cling to God. I don't know why that spazzed out on me. Cling to God as a source of hope, verse 31. I cling to your testimonies. Oh Lord, do not put me to shame. He's holding on to God, right? You know what? I think that God so much wants us to cling to Him as dependent children that He will bring times of suffering and struggle into our lives that we don't understand fully. That we can't figure out and that we can't fix. So that we will cling to Him. And that we will get to know Him. And then finally, rededicate yourself to obedience. I shall run the way of your commandments. For you will enlarge my heart. See, this guy starts out being in the dirt. Clinging to the dust. And now at the end, he's clinging to God. And this I just submit to you as a passage of scripture to use in your own life but also in the lives of people that you counsel. Help them to see their problem is not new. People throughout biblical history have been struggling with these emotional 
ups and downs thing, things that are going on and help them to see how a man like this worked through his depression. That's why I've titled this workshop that, Work Through. A depressed person wants to be just plucked out. But I have not found that to ever happen in my own life. It is a process of working through it, plowing forward one day at a time, maybe sometimes one hour at a time, doing the next right thing, trusting God with what is at the end of the road. Okay? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, so much for your word. Thank you that it is so relevant, so real. There's such honesty in the Psalms and in some of the other verses we looked at. Lord, help us to be humble before you, to recognize that ultimately you're the only one who really understands how we work, for you created us. Help us to remember that we're body and soul always together until we see you face to face. Our spirits are released from our bodies, but even then later on, our spirits will be reunited with glorified bodies that are not tainted by sin. But in the time being, Lord, our fallenness impacts every single area of our lives. Help us to be humble. Help us to be good ministers of your word in people's lives, to love them well, to guide them well. In Christ's name, amen.